0: Good morning, everyone. How are you today? Nice to see you. Nice to be with the family this morning. My name is Darren, and uh, I'm just excited to be able to open God's Word with you. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6. And for those of you who may be joining us via live stream or watching this on a podcast later, we're excited that you're with us, even if remotely. We recognize that uh, these are crazy days, and so we're happy to be able to be connected with you this way. But we also want you to know that anytime you feel comfortable to be back in here, we'd love to have you in this room with us as well so we can worship and actually shake your hand and, you know, we, we don't have to hug you if you don't want to be hugged, but we wouldn't mind hugging you if you're down for that. So, uh, Let's see. We're in Genesis 6. Now, our text this morning is, uh, is actually Genesis 6:11 all the way through the end of chapter 7. Now, when we did our reading this morning for the sake of time. We didn't read that whole thing, but obviously, there's no portion of Scripture that we would sanction skipping or ignoring or whatever. We're never trying to... We're working our way here verse through verse, but in chapter 7, we do see some redundancy. So, uh, in chapter 6, the section that we read, uh, we see that that God declares what he is going to do. And then in 7, he continues to give Noah some very specific instructions about how that will play out. And then at the end of 7, he does precisely what he says he's going to do. So there is a little bit of redundancy. Not that it isn't interesting to read, but for the sake of a message this morning, we got a lot of different components. We didn't read that whole thing at the outset. Just understand that is the, the heart of the text we're looking at. Now, before we dive into this this morning, let me say that this is a historically... Complicated text. How about that? This is a text that people have been fighting about for generations. Uh, people have lots of different opinions. People have lots of different perceptions. There's lots of different ways to look at the text. And uh, here's what sometimes happens. Whenever we find a text like this where there are lots of different opinions from lots of different people, it can be easy to demonize those uh, who look at a text differently than we do. You know what I'm saying? It's very easy to look at a text like this and go, Well, I have the perfect understanding and I have total certainty and clarity about what this text teaches and how all of this works, and anyone who doesn't agree with my interpretation or the way I've worked out the math or the way I've worked out the logic of it, they're a heretic, and so they need to be burned at the stake, and if we can you know, have that happen after church, that'd be great. We don't want to fall into that trap, right? Christians historically have been so quick to deunify and to separate and to divide over places where there are great people who love Jesus who believe that his word is authoritative, who believe that his word is inerrant, who believe that it is everything we need for life and godliness, and yet have difference of opinion on the way that it plays out. It is beneficial for us to hold our certainties loosely in the places where the Bible itself is not definitive. Does that make sense? Uh, In the places where the Bible itself is not definitive, it's great for us to turn loose loose of our certainty because sometimes our certainty becomes a tool that the enemy uses to divide us from one another. We We don't want to fall in that trap. So let me just give you a couple of examples out of this text, for instance, of the ways in which there are differences of opinion. People have questions in this text about how in the world two of every animal on the planet fits inside a boat with these dimensions. And there are great people on all different sides of arguments. There are people who argue that it could happen exactly the way it says, or that it's just talking about regional animals, or that it's talking about an overarching type of animal, and, you know, what, there's all kinds of answers. How do they, all these animals fit? There are people who look at this text and go, this seems very similar to other flood accounts that happened during this time, right? The, the things we might see in other places. Uh, is this derivative from some other account, or are those accounts derivative of this one, Right? There are people who will look at the Human Genome Project and they'll look at the work that geneticists are doing today and they'll say, it isn't scientifically possible that all of the human beings with all of our diversity could come from these eight individuals, right? When we just look at the genetics of it, the science doesn't work out. And so there are great people who love God's Word and who believe it's authoritative and who believe that it's inerrant, who figured out all kinds of different answers for how that works, how the rest of human beings come out of these eight families. There are people who argue about the volume of water. That would be necessary in order to cover the tops of all the mountains on the planet, right? To cover the tops of all the mountains on the planet, the volume of water that would be needed. Some people will look at that and say, this must not have been a global thing. It must have been a regional thing. And there are great people who love Jesus and believe God's word is authoritative and inerrant. But they get into battles over whether this was regional or whether it was global. And there are lots of great arguments you could make on either side of that case. There are people who look at this and say, if God's trying to eradicate sin, which we'll look at this morning is not exactly what he's doing here, he doesn't do a good job because Noah and his family are still pretty crummy when they come out of the boat, right? So what happened? Doesn't God know how to get rid of wicked people? He doesn't seem to do a very good job of it here, right? There are people who look at this text and will say, this seems uh, unnecessarily cruel to animals. Because he's wiping out everything with flesh that has breath in its lungs and the animals didn't do anything wrong. So what's going on with God that he killed all the antelope? Like, what's, what's the problem? Poor antelope, right? There are people who look at this text and ask all kinds of questions, and I'm only just scratching the surface. What I want you to understand is there are lots of people who have lots of good answers, and there are lots of great people who love Jesus and love his word and believe it is valuable and authoritative who would disagree on the way you read this. And it's okay for us to have our doubts, right? It's okay for us to have our doubts. You know, our doubts actually help us understand more clearly what we believe. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but as a community, as a family of believers, as people who are seeking to reveal Christ in this day and age, we have to be people who can embrace doubt who can embrace questions, who can embrace a quizzical mind that would want to look at a text like this and go, well, I don't understand. I want to dig a little deeper. I actually grew up in a tradition that wanted to be certain about everything all the time. And anybody who expressed any kind of doubt or any kind of question was immediately ostracized and was forced to the margins or forced entirely out. If they had doubts about some of these things, that's not who we want to be. There are great reasons to ask good questions of a text like this or any other. And we want to be a community of people who love Jesus and love his word and are seeking to reveal him in our day and age, but who have room for doubters, right? And if you're here this morning and you've got doubt, I want you to know this is a good home for you. This is a place where you can come and worship and thrive and ask your questions and we'll wrangle these things together and you don't have to feel that because of your questions or because of your doubts, this isn't a place for you, right? We, we welcome you. And we, so that I just kind of want to start with that. And I also wanted to say this. Uh, so often, this text, this, the story of the flood, uh, has been painted on the walls of children's nurseries. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, because of the animal thing, I think, and it's cool to have a boat, and there's the rainbow, and you've seen those nurseries. They're very beautiful. The thing that's missing in all of those nursery paintings is, of course, the dead bodies. There are. There are a lot, a lot of dead bodies in this story. And so I want to be really careful as we look at it together that you understand this isn't a cute story. This isn't a cute story. The story of Noah and the flood is not a cute story. It's not the kind of thing to be winked at. It's not a story of celebration necessarily, although it points to things we can celebrate. The story itself is horrible, right? This is a, this is a crushing devastating story. And sometimes when we look at a story like this and we don't allow ourselves to feel the heaviness of it or the gut wrenchingness of it, what ends up happening instead is we read a text like this with glee, and that glee is misplaced. If you read this text and you go, oh, good, the wicked people are going to get what's coming to them and I'm going to be on the boat. It's going to be nice, right? If you, if you find your heart looking at this and reveling in the destruction of people who are wicked, I would want to caution you. Because what then is stirring in your heart as you read a text like this is the same kind of hunger for violence that God is punishing in this text, right? The same thing that would stir in our hearts to go, "I would like to see other people destroyed," is exactly what God looks at and cites as a, as a part of the corruption of the whole earth hunger for violence. We we never want to look at the punishment or the justice of God being doled out to people with a sense of uh, self-righteousness or self-satisfaction or joy. I love in Daniel chapter four, when we've looked at this before, when Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar and he needs to give him the interpretation of the dream. And he says to Nebuchadnezzar, oh king, I wish this dream and its interpretation were for your enemies. I wish it was for somebody else. But here's what God is going to do, right? When we look at this text, we don't don't want to look at it, number one, like a cute children's story. It isn't that. Number two, we don't want to look at this text with a sense of self-satisfaction. The moment that we revel in the destruction of other people, our hearts have turned to the very same kind of violence that is necessitating the wrath of God in this text, right? So here's what we do see. What we do see in the text, and we'll just kind of walk through it in the time we have. What we do see in the text is a sorrowful God bringing justice upon the earth, Right. While this isn't a children's story, I would say the the principles in the story are simple enough for children to understand. I really only have two points this morning. It's not going to take me too long to articulate them. Two main points this morning, and the first one is that God punishes sin. That God punishes sin. But this isn't a, a God who finds glee or joy in the destruction of sinners either. What it says is that God is grieved in this case, right? That God is grieved, That he feels a sense of sorrow over the destruction that he himself is bringing, but God is perfect, and he is holy, and he is just, and he must punish sin. The Bible teaches there is uh, no way in which the guilty can go unpunished because of the holiness and justice, because of the glory of God. But we see that God is sorrowful here, that God is bringing justice to the earth. It said in the text that we read last week that all men were evil without pause, right? Violence abounds. The word uh, corrupted or destroyed is in this. It says in verse 11 and following, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, right? That word for corrupted, it, it essentially means destroyed. The people had ruined their lives and they'd ruined the earth and in some ways they'd ruined even their stewardship of the creation we don't understand the depth of that but the fact that god destroys everything with breath in it is evidence of the fact that it wasn't just that the people themselves were wicked inwardly but that their relationships were destroyed the planet itself was being destroyed by their evil well this is just a continuation of the story we've already been studying right God gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to walk in harmony and communion with him. He gave them the opportunity to do the thing they were built to do, which was to know him and walk with him. And they chose the other path. Then we see that Cain, God comes to Cain and says, man, sin is crouching at your door and you can master it. But if you don't, it's going to take control. And Cain made the choice to go his own way. Further and further, we looked at the, at the lineages two weeks ago, the lineage of Seth and the lineage of Cain, and we talked about the fact that there were people who called on the name of the Lord. But by the time we come to Genesis 6, even those who had called on the name of the Lord, their descendants and some of them have come to a place where they've consciously moved away from serving God. And so God will punish that sin. God will judge. He is a God who is holy and just, and He will punish the sin. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to understand that. But what God is doing here is he's finishing what they've already started. If the people are destroying the earth with their evil, with their violence, with their corruption, what God is doing is he's saying, if this is what the people want, destruction, then destruction is what they'll have. Then destruction is what they'll have. I, uh, I think I've told some of this story before, but when I was uh, working at Hume Lake, we moved into this new building, the Joshua building, and I was building all the furniture. Not building the furniture, I was assembling the furniture, right? Assembling a new desk and a couple of chairs and whatever in my new office. I'm sitting on the floor and I'm putting this uh, I'm putting this office furniture together, and all of a sudden I look over, and on the floor, just kind of across the office from me, there's the cutest little mouse. Like almost like a cartoon mouse, just like the cutest little guy. Big ears, cute little nose, whiskers, the whole thing. And he's just sitting up on his hind legs and he's just kind of like messing with his claws. And I'm like, oh, that's so cute, cute little mouse, you know. And I'm like, hi, little mouse, you know. And he just sat there, and I thought for a minute, like, maybe he's got rabies, I should be careful. But he just sat over there. So I'm building my desk, and the more I thought about it, I'm like, this is a brand new building in the middle of the forest. Like, We probably, we probably shouldn't have a mouse in here, you know what I mean? We probably, that's probably not good for the long-term viability of the building. So uh, I tried to get the mouse to go, right? So I walked over to him, and I was like, hey... You got to get out of here, you know, but I'm in the office and there's not like an easy exit path. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get him out of the, how I'm going to get him out of the building, much less my office. But he doesn't really seem like he wants to leave. He seems like he just wants to hang out with me. It feels like we're becoming friends, me and this little mouse. While he doesn't belong in the building, uh, there's a little bit of a kinship happening. And so I'm like, little mouse, man, you can't be in here. This is a brand new building. You got to get out of here. Go back out into the forest and do your thing, you know, and he's just sitting there. He won't leave and he's just kind of hanging out. So I go to the foreman, a guy named Jake, and he was the guy who had built the whole building. In fact, he was doing kind of the final inspection process before he was going to hand over the keys. And I said to Jake, I said, Jake, I'm putting my office furniture together and there's just like the cutest little mouth, big ears and the little nose and the, and the whiskers and whatever. And he's in my office and I tried to get him to go outside, but I can't get him to go. I can't, uh, I can't seem to get him to move. And so I'm wondering if maybe you could help me just figure out what to do about this mouse. And he goes, where is it? And I was like, it's in my office. He goes, yeah, no problem. So he comes downstairs with me. He walks into my office. He goes, where's the mouse i'm like he's right there see the cute little guy he's just hanging there jake reaches into the loop on his jeans and he pulls out his hammer and he smashes the mouse and i was like ah! right? that is not what i was asking for i was not asking for the eradication of the mouse. You're like that's so awful you killed him. my f- i was just making friends with him right that was my friend the mouse it was gross it's so gross right But listen, the foreman understood and he said this to me, he picked up the mouse and he's like, I know you wanted to save the mouse, but the deal is like in this new building, I can't have any mice in here. So they have to go, right? That's it. If I take him outside, he's just going to come back in. Well, he knew more than I did. I look at this story of the judgment of God. And to be honest with you, there are parts of it that are crushing to me. And I look at it and go, couldn't there have been some other way? Couldn't there have been some other way to deal with this? That all the antelope and all the people and all, like everybody but no one is family, and they're still kind of crummy. Like all these people had to die. There is a part of me that has to rest in the wisdom and the sovereignty of God, that His justice is pure and that His justice is right. We've talked before about the fact that God isn't just us on our best day. Sometimes we want to make God just like us, uh, free of all of our weakness and imperfection, but that isn't who God is. He's other, He's separate, He's holy. And his judgments are true, even if they're hard for us to wrap our minds around. God here is sorrowful and he brings justice to the earth. Jesus speaks about the days of Noah in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What we see in that text is that while God in his sight saw that the earth was full of corruption and violence and wickedness and that his justice needed to be served, while God saw that with his sight, man didn't see it at all. They were still throwing their parties. They were still eating their dinner. They were still planning their engagements. They were still having their weddings. They were just going on with life like normal. Well, what does that tell us? What it tells us is that God's sight is different than our sight and we need to sit up straighter and pay attention to that. Proverbs 14, 12 says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. That sometimes we're not even aware of how corrupted we've become. We're not even aware of how vile things have become. We're not even aware of how much violence we're bringing into our relationships and into our world. But God sees it. God sees it and he judges justly. It also tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, speaking of Noah... It says in uh, chapter or Second Peter chapter two verse five, uh, he, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah. A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world by the ungodly. Then he goes on to talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. He talks about Noah as a herald of righteousness. Well, a herald of righteousness is not just someone who's off building their boat in privacy and isolation. A herald of righteousness is someone, according to 2 Peter, who is declaring the truth of who God is, that there's another way to live, that there's a way to be faithful and to walk with God and to be blameless in your generation. We understand that that Noah was an ambassador, that he was an advocate, that he was a herald of faith and righteousness. So even in the midst of Noah's witness and even in the midst of Noah's testimony, God looks at the earth and man has chosen to live a destructive, corruptive life and God decides to finish what they've started. My first point today is that God brings justice. God will punish sin right? He gives Noah in this text specific details about building the boat, about gathering the animals. Noah couldn't have known everything. And Noah didn't even have to like the way this was going down. But the text tells us that he had faith in God, that he had faith in God. In fact, both in Genesis 6.22 and in Genesis 7.5, if you look down at verse 22 in both of those places, it says uh, back to Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 22. It says, Noah did this He did all that God commanded him. So even in the fact that Noah didn't know everything God was going to do, he didn't understand the full totality of it. He couldn't possibly have understood the way the flood was going to work the way it worked. What he did understand is what God told him, what God had revealed to him. And he was faithful to obey with what he knew. There isn't a single solitary person in this room who understands God in in totality. There's no one in the room who has a comprehension of God that is uh, inexhaustible, right? Because God is infinite. But what we do know, we can live faithfully in obedience to. The things God has revealed, we can live faithfully in obedience to. And as such, we become heralds of righteousness in the midst of crooked, crooked generations. Right Times when people don't even see their own, their own corruption, their own violence, their own wickedness. Noah did all that God commanded. And then I want you to note, too, when talking about the fact that God punishes sin, I also want you to see here in chapter uh, 7, verse 16. This verse, I think, is really important. After Noah and his family enter into the boat, it says, those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in, verse 16. If you're the kind of person who takes notes, if you have one of our Genesis journals, I'd I'd say, underline and, and circle the word, the Lord shut him in. I think this is important. There isn't a point in this story where Noah looks at his neighbors and he looks at his fellow countrymen and where he looks at his cousins and his aunts and his uncles and his grandparents and other people. There isn't a point in this story where Noah closes the door on anybody. There's not a place in this story where Noah goes, all right, I got all the good guys inside and all the bad guys are outside. Time to slide all the bolts in the door and lock them all out. I think the reason that God closes the door in this case is because if if I put myself in Noah's shoes, I wouldn't close the door. That's just how I'm wired. I would be standing at the door forever. As the rain fell and the floodwaters rose, I'd be standing at the door going, come on, come on, come on. There's still time. Get in here. As the water sort of rose up to my chin, I'd be saying to my neighbors, my friends, please get in this boat. Like, please. You've seen all of this. A herald of righteousness. I want you to see here that God closes the door, not Noah. That God closes the door. Why? Because he is the one who's fit to judge. He is the one who's fit to judge whether the people outside the boat will ever turn, will ever put their faith in him, will ever believe in him, will ever walk away from their villainy and their corruption and their wickedness. Will they ever be faithful? And when God closes the door, that's an answer to the question. Was there anybody outside that boat who was faithful, who would have turned and trusted in God when God closes the door? You can know. That wasn't based on Noah's flawed and finite judgment. It wasn't Noah going, well, I like these people and I don't like these people. God's the one who shut the door. I feel very good about God shutting the door on my fellow human being. I don't feel good about it, but I feel good about his ability to judge. You know what I don't feel good about? My ability to judge. My ability to look at my fellow man and go, those are the people outside of the boat, and I'm the one inside the boat, and good for me. No, no, no. I feel great about God shutting the door. I'm really glad that verse is in here, because it takes the pressure off of me to be the one who decides who's in and out. God... Will punish sin. But the the second point, I said it's a very simple message today. The second point, and the most important point, is that even in the midst of God punishing sin, God also provides a means of salvation. The fact that he has come to Noah and He has said, I'm going to make a covenant with you, right? That He says to Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Go back to Genesis chapter 6, look at verse 18. God says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, right? He says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm I'm going to make a pact with you. I will make this right. What's he doing? Well, he's telling the story here in Genesis 6 that the Bible tells over and over and over and over again. You know what the story, you guys know the story, right? You know that the Bible essentially tells one story and the story that the Bible tells is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, And the fact that in our brokenness, we were separated from God, that we were wicked and corrupt and deserving of God's justice and judgment. And God will judge and God will be just because he's holy. But God loves us. And so he sent his son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. And Jesus took the sin of mankind upon himself. He died on the cross and shed his blood as a substitute, a sacrifice. He was buried dead, but he rose again. And when he rose again, he not only had paid the penalty for our sin, but then he proves he has the power over life and death, which by his grace then, at no cost to us, but as a gift, God extends to us that very same resurrection life. He makes a way. Will God judge the wickedness? absolutely but will he make a way yeah how do we know because he did it again and again and again and again look at every page when it talks in the new testament about jesus going through the bible and showing people where he was revealed on every page it's because it's the same story all of these stories are pointing at the fact that god will judge sin but he will be a deliverer and a redeemer and a father and a giver of good gifts he will make a way for salvation to be possible he preserves these eight people it says in First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 and following, "...for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah again if you're a note taker there's another word to underline the patience of God God desires that none should perish but that all would come to repentance we see the love and the care of God even as revealed in the story of Noah and that he was patient It says, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God will punish sin, number one, but number two, God makes a way for salvation. God makes a way for us to be redeemed, and he does that through Noah and his family. Now, note here, this isn't because Noah and his family were so great. They weren't sinless. The Bible says they were righteous and blameless, uh, that he was righteous and blameless, and he walked with God, but the word righteous there doesn't mean that he was perfect in every way. It simply means, and sort of reaffirms what we read in, in Hebrews chapter 11, which is that it, it, Noah heard what God had said and believed it, and it was credited to him, Right? He heard what God had said, and he believed it. I can read that pet text to you as well. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. When Genesis chapter 6 tells us that Noah was righteous, it doesn't mean he was a good guy and everybody else was a bad guy. It means that he believed what God said. And it was credited to him. There was faith. He was a man of faith. When it says that Noah was a man of blamelessness, that just means that that he wasn't hated by the people in his generation. That they had no accusation against him. That he lived an upright life among his peers. But remember, his peers were villainous and violent and wicked and corrupt. The fact that they didn't have anything against him isn't really that awesome. Right? But it says that he walked with God. There are only a few people in the Bible. Dan talked about this last week. Only a few people in the Bible that says walked with God. What does that mean? Walking with God is hearing what God has said and then doing what God has said, right? Hearing what God has said and then doing what God has said. That is the way in which God preserves a remnant in this text. Not because Noah was sinless, but because he was faithful. This is grace and mercy and redemption on display. It says in chapter 6, verse 8 of Genesis, we looked at this last week. In Genesis 6, 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is essentially pointing at the grace of God. It wasn't any merit on Noah's part, but the grace of God, right? In Noah's life. God makes a way and he delivers his people through this flood. You can read about all of that through 7 and we'll, we'll continue in this study but let me, let me finish up with this. I'm, I'm a little bit over my time already. Acts chapter 17, verse thirty-one, 30 and 31. Acts 17, and th- verses 30 and 31 say this. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let me, let me tell you. It, whether you believe all the animals fit into the ark or not. Whether you believe that water covered the tallest mountains on the whole planet or not. Whether, whatever you believe about some of these contested issues in the story of Genesis 6. The reality is that what the Bible has said with certainty is that there is another day of judgment coming. That there is another day when God in, in, in characteristic fashion. In consistency with who he is. When God will punish the unrighteousness of men. God will punish sin because he's holy and just and cannot let sin go unpunished. But just like in Genesis 6, just like in Genesis 3, God redeems and preserves and has made a way for salvation. And that is as true for us this morning as it has ever been. The story we see in Genesis 6, no matter what you might argue about in there, what it does is it points us, a flashing signpost pointing ahead to the consistency of God's character who will punish sin but makes a way through. And the way in which God has made a way through is through the the saving work of Christ, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Here's why this matters. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, if you've never trusted in Christ to rescue you from sin and death, you're very much in this spot kind of like the people in Noah's day who were throwing their parties and they were eating their meals and they were getting married and planning weddings and doing all the things and they had no idea that God had looked upon them and said, these people are corrupt in every way. They've done violence throughout the whole earth. In fact, I'm going to have to just finish this up. You going to have to finish what they started. They were oblivious to it. They had Noah, a righteous herald, who was saying, trust in God, right? He's building a boat. There are animals coming towards it. And they don't pay any attention. There are some of you maybe in the room who've never put your faith in Christ. And the reality is that the story of the whole Bible is that there is a day of judgment coming. And this isn't me preaching fire and brimstone. This is just me telling you what the story of the Bible is. That there is justice and judgment coming. But God loves you. And I don't just mean that he loves the planet and he loves, you know, like he loves it in sort of a generic way. I mean, he knows you. He knows you're busted. He knows I'm busted. He knows I don't get it right all the time. He knows I'm broken and flawed, that I got my doubts, that I got my unjustified certainties, all those things, right? And he loves me just like he loves you. And he came and he died on the cross and he extends to you resurrection life. But the difference won't be whether you're a good person or whether you come to church here, whether you donate money or walk old ladies across the street. At the end of the day, the difference in Noah's life, the thing that preserved Noah, was the favor of God. The grace of God which provoked in him righteousness and blamelessness and a walking with God. Same thing is true this morning. There isn't a, there, there isn't a program you've got to sign up for. There's not a new curriculum at our church that you need to study. Uh, There there is not, I don't don't have a sign-up sheet for people who want to be saved through the destruction to come. You want to know how that happens? It happens by trusting in Christ and only by trusting in Christ. Faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I implore you. I know that's a weird word, but I'm basically saying as one broken human being to another, don't wait another minute. Put your trust in Jesus, because while he will punish sin, and all of us are sinners, he makes a way for salvation to occur through the death and resurrection of Christ, and by his grace he extends that to us. Will you, will you be reconciled to God this morning? We're going to celebrate here in a second baptism, and Zach's going to come up and talk to us a little bit about what that's, what's happening here. But baptism is, in essence, an outward demonstration of an inward Salvation, right? An outward demonstration of an inward change. Now, this morning, it's interesting. We got two services, and all of the people that were signed up for the first service have moved to the second. I don't know if that's because when their friends are here or whatever, but we, and Zach probably is about to say this, but we, we, the people we had signed up for the first service have moved to the second. We got about 20 people being baptized in our second service today. As of right now, we don't have anybody scheduled to be baptized. But here's what that does in my heart. But that does in my heart as it makes me wonder if God didn't bring some of you here for the first service who never put your faith in Christ or never taken this step of faith and demonstrably showing to the world that you've been baptized. If God didn't bring some of you here today who need to be saved, who need to be baptized, who haven't done that. So Zach's going to come and talk a little bit about this. But I would say to you this morning, look into your heart. And if you've never put your faith in Christ, do that right where you sit. And if you've put your faith in Christ, but you've never followed in the ordinance of Christ and being baptized in front of your peers, then maybe even though you're in your fancy shoes and maybe even though you're in, you know, the nice jeans that you, you know, only wear on Sundays, maybe just maybe God brought you to this service this morning because he wants you to soak those suckers in this tub, right? I don't know. Just think about it. Zach's going to come out and he's going to set us up for our response time this morning.